Well, as you heard, I have some daughters, and one of the nice things about having daughters is being female myself, I understand them most of the time. Uh, And so when they have their different struggles that they face, uh, I can 100% relate to them. I can think of some childhood story that I remember, some experience I've gone through, or you know, some lesson that I've learned. And I often do try to bring that up with them, not to show them that I understand, although I want them to know that, but I hope that whatever I share with them would be an example to them. I hope that what I would uh, say and what I would do would show them what it looks like to be a godly woman. Well, recently I had the opportunity to speak truth into one of my daughter's lives. She was telling me about this particular struggle that she has uh, and the certain situation she often feels left out. And I didn't actually have to think back far into my past to remember a story. Uh, I could remember just a couple of days before when I had that sinking feeling as I looked at some pictures on Instagram. Uh, It was these really cute pictures of these people that I once thought that I was so close to. And they were having their annual childhood best friends reunion that I have never been invited to. And every year I see that, I'm like, oh. So then I was, you know, talking to my daughter and I'm hearing her struggle and I'm able to say, yeah, I get it. It is hard. I I totally understand. I know what it feels like to be left out. And I was even able to tell her about what I saw on Instagram and uh, how I thought about it. And I really tried to help her see how I processed it in order to please God. The point was not to vent about what it feels like to be left out or or not even necessarily to relate to her. My aim in it all was I was hoping that I would nudge her in the right direction. And in essence, that's what we studied in our text this week. The Apostle Paul tells his story in hopes to be a good example to the Thessalonians. Um, He recounts what it was like to come to them, how it was hard, how he was dealing with persecution, but then how he sought to honor God through it all. He was hoping that his example would nudge them in the right direction. Uh, He knows they're tracking. He wants them to keep tracking. It's like, in essence, he's saying, this is what it looks like to live following Christ. Uh, And really everything he said in this text is what it still looks like today to live to follow Christ. It's almost like you could picture the Apostle Paul sitting at your kitchen counter, maybe even pulling out his Instagram, telling you about his experience. You know, this is what it was like when I was in Philippi, and this is what it was like when I went to Thessalonica, and this is what I did in order to please God. And and no doubt, by the end of hearing his example, we would be challenged to live more wholeheartedly for the Lord and more pure-heartedly, or a simple way to say it, is we would be compelled to do more of the right things for the right reasons. And uh, the Apostle Paul is not coming to any of our kitchens anytime soon, but his words are here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I think they will prove to be a great encouragement and a challenge to our lives. So if you haven't, turn with me there, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You remember up to this point in the book, he has introduced himself. He's talked about how thankful he is 
for the Thessalonians, how they're being fruitful, and he's so thankful for that, how their fruitfulness is known all over the place, even the persecution they are dealing with. And then he turns his attention in chapter two to his experience as he went to visit Thessalonica. So let's read it. First Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through six. It says, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Right away, as you read that text, you see that it's obvious that Paul and the Thessalonians, they were on the same page. He kept saying things like, you already know this. Uh, Verse one, he said, for you yourselves know. He said it again in verse two, you know, that we've been shamefully treated as you know. Verse five, he says it again, as you know. He's not saying anything new. Uh, The people knew who Paul was. They knew what he was about. They had responded well to him already. And that's why verse one says what it does. uh, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't fruitless. It wasn't pointless because these are now Christians, right, who are following after Jesus. And that's really neat to think about, that these were non-Christians, and now they are saved followers of Christ, uh, fully tracking with Paul, uh, already affirming his ministry and his conduct that was done among them. And uh, the Thessalonians' response is exactly what we would want from the people in our lives. You know, if we were to say something like, I I spoke boldly of the gospel, as you know. You would want them to nod their heads, right? Not go, well, or or if you were to describe, you know, this is how I came to you. This is why I came to you. You would want them to affirm, yes, absolutely. You represented the gospel well. And that should be our goal. Uh, The first thing we're challenged by the Apostle Paul's example is point number one, we need to represent Jesus well represent Jesus well. That's really the thrust of this whole text is that's what Paul did. Paul represented Jesus well, and that's gotta be the the thrust of our application. He did it through preaching the gospel as well as in his actions and his conduct, his behavior among them. Um, So first in preaching the gospel, uh, we were encouraged to do that last week, to boldly proclaim the gospel, and that's what he said he did in verse number two. I'll read it again. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And we've learned the background to that, what that persecution was um, in Acts chapter 16, what he dealt with in Philippi, but none of that slowed him down. It could have slowed him down, but it didn't. He pushed through and he shared the gospel. And that is certainly a theme that we have had here at Compass Bible Church. If you've been here on the weekends and learning through Acts, we have our four people that we're praying for. We're being reminded we need to pray for these people. We need to share the gospel with these people. And we learned it last week. We need to share the gospel. Uh, There's this phrase in here, though, that I want to camp out on. 
And I think it could potentially transform our ability to speak up and share the gospel. It's the words that they had boldness in our God. When I first read that, I was like, yeah, I know what that means. We are supposed to be bold, right? We're supposed to speak up. We're supposed to courageously share the gospel. But when you look at it closely, the emphasis is not on personal confidence. It's not on our ability to be brave and to speak up. It's in God. Our boldness is in our God. God is why we are confident. It's like walking across one of those, you know, tightrope kind of things, those things that you do 300 feet up in the air, you know, to get like an adrenaline rush or one of those other kinds of rope coursey type things. And yes, it takes some skill, right? You got to have a little bit of skill to walk across that rope. But you would be silly if your confidence was in your skill. I mean, in that sense, it's like you're pretending. I'm pretending that I am so awesome that I can walk across this rope. Really, your confidence should be in the thing that is keeping you secure. It's that harness that's attached to you. It's that rope that's attached to you. That is what you are secure in. That's where your confidence is in. We can jump into evangelism forgetting who we are attached to. It's like we think we're up there all by ourselves being as brave as possible, thinking, okay, how can I just muster up the courage to do this? What is it I'm gonna say? How should I say it? How will it be most effective? When in reality, our confidence does not need to be in ourselves; it needs to be in God. A go-to passage on evangelism, you actually looked at it last week, but I think it's worth turning to again. 2 Corinthians chapter five. So turn there with me, 2 Corinthians chapter five. And it emphasizes this focus on God in a way that we might not usually notice. So it's Paul's words, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll look at verses 17 through 20. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The emphasis in this text is God doing the work. And I know we know that when it comes to salvation. I mean, we would affirm that right off the bat. No, God is the one who saves people. But here we see God is the one who does the work in evangelism. I mean, look at verse 18. All of this is from God. I mean, the message itself originates from God. And then later in verse 18, it's him who gives us this ministry of reconciliation. Towards the end of verse 19, again, he entrusted it to us. He gave it to us. In verse 20, God making his appeal through us. It's what he does that makes us courageous. We're representing him. It's his message. And God gives us the strength through his spirit to represent him. We are bold in him, not in ourselves. It's a phrase that we could tell ourselves uh, when we need to find courage to represent Jesus well. But first I'll tell you where it came from. Uh, for exercise, 
I do these spin classes. And I have this favorite instructor that I like to use. And she's, I don't know, she's just happy and positive and everything's clean and, uh, you know, not like a barking instructor of some kind. So she has all of these phrases that she uses. And they sound pretty cheesy. Things like, no matter how slow you are going, you're still going a million miles faster than everyone on the couch. I'm always like a little, oh, I don't know how that math works, but sure, yeah. Uh, don't compare your chapter one to someone else's chapter 20. You have nothing to prove and everything to gain. Uh, it sounds really cheesy, but you know when the music is going real loud and you're sweating, you're like, yeah, I can do this. But that's not the phrase. The phrase I'm thinking of is a cheesier one. Uh, as you get going up the hill, you know, it's getting really hard. She'll say something like, tell yourself, I am awesome. Say it to your neighbor, I am awesome. <laughs> and I want you to take that phrase and I want you to twist it. Because in one sense, that's exactly what we're tempted to do as we go into evangelism. I am awesome, I can do this, I can be courageous, I can be awesome and bold and brave and I can say the things I'm supposed to say. But we don't have to be awesome because God is awesome. He's got this. Tell yourself that as your heart is pumping and you're going up to your neighbor and you know you need to say something or you know you need to make that phone call. You know you need to take the conversation to the next level. Tell yourself, God is awesome. Psalm 66.5 says, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds. God is awesome in his deeds, what he did through the gospel. It's his message. It's the message that he gives us. He will give us the effectiveness to be bold and courageous. He will make it effective. He will save people. It's him. We need to have boldness in our God if we're gonna represent Jesus well. Paul also represented Jesus well by his life. Uh, he was able to point to it, right? In the text we saw, he says, these were not my motives, these were my motives, this was my conduct. Uh, he even calls God to witness in verse five. And basically this whole section is elaborating on what we saw in the first chapter. Chapter one, verse five, where it says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. In other words, it was the kind of person that Paul was that represented Jesus well. And there's an expectation that that's what we will all be like as Christians. We see that all over the New Testament. Uh, passages like Ma Matthew 5, 16 says, let our light shine before others. You know, our, light, our life is supposed to point people to Jesus. Uh, or Philippians 1, 27 says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or Titus 2, 10 and everything adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And Paul did that well, but it is certainly not just the job of an apostle. Every Christian, we should be adorning the doctrine of God. We should be pointing people to Christ by our life. Uh, not like what I remember me and my sister used to do uh, back in the day in elementary school. We you know, grew up in a Christian home and we had uh, cousins who were Jehovah's Witness. So we knew they didn't believe in Jesus. And so we would go to visit them, this 30 minute drive, and in the car, somewhere along the way, it would come up every time, me and my sister would be like, okay, we have got to do a good job. We have to treat each other nice. We have to share, we have to be kind. We need to make Jesus look good. We've got to stop fighting so much in front of them. And then you know, we'd bicker part of the way there. 
And I, I remember, like, even some, like, tag game or hide-and-seek, I remember seeing her, you know, kind of in some hidden spot and be like, come on, we've got to be nice to each other. And then all the way home, you know, we'd be fighting. And that is not the goal when we're representing Jesus with our life. We are not trying to be something that we're not. We are not trying to put on a show. What we are trying to do is to show that the power of God that we point to, that we say this is the power of God that saves, is the same power of God that changes our lives. Because the power of God does change everything. It changes our priorities, our marriages, our parenting, our perspective, our habits, our passions. If you care about representing Jesus well, if you care about souls being saved, then you've got to care about the holiness in your marriage. If you care about pointing people to Jesus, then you've got to care that you are loving, that you are selfless, that you're putting other people first, that you're patient. In our battle for sanctification, we can't act as if the same power that saves us is not strong enough to deal with the struggles that we have in our lives. We should leave no area untouched. We should represent Jesus well in every aspect of our lives. We are walking billboards for the power of God. And that's even true of the motives for doing what we do. That's another thing we learn from the Apostle Paul is he represented Jesus well all the way to the core of who he was. If you're not in the passage, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter two. We see that he represented Jesus well just by why he did what he did. We'll read verses three through six again. 1 Thessalonians two, uh, one, sorry, two, verses three through six says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So Paul says in verse three that he didn't proclaim the gospel with any kind of wrong motives. He had no kind of error. Uh, he didn't have impurity. He wasn't looking to get something inappropriate. He wasn't trying to deceive anyone. Verse four, towards the end of verse four, it says that he wasn't trying to please people. Verse five, he wasn't trying to, to flatter, you know, to gain something from flattering someone, or he wasn't being greedy, uh, looking for money. Verse six, he wasn't trying to get glory. I mean, he was able to confidently say, I wasn't in it for myself. How good it would be to be that confident, to say, I am not in it for myself, and I know that. So every once in a while, it's good to take some time, to take some reflection time, and just look at our hearts, and do some soul searching, why do I do what I do? Am I really not in it for myself? I said it this way for point number two. Inspect your motives. Inspect your motives. What's behind what you do? Uh, anything you do, the ministry that you do. In daily life, our motives matter for everything. And obviously Paul lists out several of them. And I think we could probably put them in three categories. 
where Paul says, I am not motivated by how I feel, by what I gain, or by what other people think of me, uh, all of which are worth us looking into. Um, so first of all, letter A, he's not motivated by how he feels. This is a less clearly stated motive in this text, but just thinking about the context, Paul is saying that in Philippi, what he dealt with is he dealt with suffering. Uh, he was humiliated, he was treated shamefully, he's in the, the midst of much conflict. He's a human person. I mean, he just dealt with that. Does he now feel like going over to Thessalonica to now potentially deal with the same kind of thing? Probably not, but he did it anyway because he's not motivated. He's not driven by what he feels like doing. Um, so he does. He goes to Thessalonica. It takes him, you know, a four long walking journey to get there. He gets there. Not only is he just, you know, standing physically, but he's standing strong in purity. We see that in verses three through six. Clearly, he is being a godly guy. He's not being tossed to and fro by what does he feel like doing or how does he feel like acting in that moment. And it's good for us to take some time to really think about this because often the right thing to do doesn't feel exactly right. And the wrong thing might even feel just right. Even in evangelism, we can think about this. You know, I, I don't feel like sharing the gospel, you know, it's just kind of out of the way. I mean, I literally just don't feel like doing it. Or I don't really feel like making a fool out of myself today. I don't feel like taking the time to invest in the people in order to get to there in the gospel. I don't feel like being persecuted or just in ministry and serving God in general and living for him. I don't feel like putting myself out in order to love somebody else. I don't feel like selflessly sacrificing for my family to serve them. I, I don't feel like forgiving like I know I should. Or looking at it the other way, um, I, I feel like, I just feel like being mad. I feel like staying bitter. Or I feel like sleeping instead of being intimate with my husband when I know I should. I feel like sharing that juicy piece of information that I have that I so badly want to share with someone. We can't be motivated by what we feel like unless our feelings are leading us to righteousness. We gotta be ready to do the things that we don't feel like doing and we gotta be ready to not do the things that we feel like doing if we know that we shouldn't be doing them. Of course, we recognize those feelings, we, we see them, they're real feelings, but they shouldn't be the catalyst for what we do. Um, you can feel weak, but we know what Paul says to that. When we are weak, that's when we are strong. You know the passage, 2 Corinthians 12, verses nine through 10, it says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We can feel weak. We can feel like we don't want to do the things that we should be doing, but that is when we can be strong. That is when we can rely on the power of God and do exactly what we know we should be doing. Paul also said that he wasn't motivated by selfish gain. Letter B, uh, Paul was not motivated by what he gains. 
In verse three, uh, he's not trying to deceive them in order to get something. That would be the implication. Um, verse five, he is not uh, flattering people, which often would be for the sake of getting something. Verse five also said financial gain. So he's not in it for that kind of gain, money gain. And then even in verse six, it says that he could have legitimately gained something. And even that he is not claiming the rights to. It is so easy to do things only because we will get something out of it. Uh, I mean, Paul specifically, he's talking about preaching the gospel. So that is implying that we could even be doing really godly things with a heart of selfishness. And we see that all over the place in our culture today uh, where Jesus has become commercialized, right? I mean, people will get up there on stages, they will write songs, they will write books, uh, they will become known, they are trying to get a bigger platform, trying to get money, trying to get fame, whatever it is, whatever Jesus can give them. Uh, and that might not be our temptation, but I'm sure we could find ways where even in serving, we are only in it to get something for ourselves. Uh, we might find that it is the easiest, uh, the most natural, or just what we do where we seek to be kind and generous uh, to the, the cool Christians, to the easy Christians, to the good-looking Christians, to the wealthy Christians. I mean, whoever w will give us something out of it, not the person that nobody knows. Not the, we're looking for the notable Christians to spend our time with, to invest in. Or we'll do things primarily to get a pat on the back or to get some spiritual accolades, to get a thanks, uh, to get popularity, or we'll flatter, we'll say things that aren't entirely true to get people to like us, or to feel good about us, or to give us something. Um, even our evangelism can be simply for the benefit of checking the box. You know, I just wanna get that guilt off my back and be able to say that I did it to my small group. It's not out of the motive of love that I, I care for these people. And these people are gonna stand before God, their souls that I care about and I wanna share the gospel with. We gotta pray, we gotta ask God, God, is there anything hidden in my motives where I'm really just after selfish gain? I'm in it for myself um, without the right motives Maybe even I'm deceiving. Uh, I'm deceiving other people by acting like I'm serving in this way or that way, but really, it's about myself. Psalm 44, 21 says that God knows the secrets of the heart. So we can ask him, knowing that he knows, and knowing that he cares and that he loves us and he wants us to be sanctified, he's not gonna keep that from us. Uh, he will show us what is it in our heart that is actually selfish. Paul also mentions uh, that he's not motivated by, letter C, what other people thought of him. By what people thought of him. He says in verse six that he wasn't seeking glory from people, whether from you or from others. Uh, in verse four, five, uh, sorry, four, he says, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So he wasn't in it to seek glory, to look good, to make a name for himself. I mean, what people thought of him wasn't his focus. So again, we gotta ask ourselves, in what way are we too focused on what other people think? You know, where we catch ourselves going, who sees me doing this? Who's going to see me doing this? Who's watching? Or maybe we don't want them to see. Who, I don't want people to see what it is I'm doing. So much time, effort, even money can be poured in to wanting ourselves to be perceived 
in a certain kind of way because we care so much about what other people think of us. Um, just wanting to appear like we have everything all together. Maybe just wanting to literally physically appear a certain way. We want to look a certain way um, for other people. Uh, just how we want our homes to appear. How we want our kids to be perceived. What we want to portray to the online world. And I admit it can be so messy because even our bad motives can be right up there next to our good motives, all mixed together. Uh, you know, it's, it's good thing to take care of your body. But then all of a sudden, we find that our motives can so quickly turn to caring about myself so much and wanting to look a certain way. And as I, you know, walk by the mirror, just kind of keep peeking to see, to see what's there. Uh, it's a good thing to take care of your home but how quickly it turns into wanting to impress other people. And it's a great thing to want to be effective in ministry, but then it quickly can turn into chasing after our own glory. It's like the good motives can get lost in our bad motives. Uh, just, you can kind of picture a, a diamond ring getting lost in a trash can. And it's important. You got to go get it. So there you are, you're sifting through the trash can, looking through it, going by some slimy banana pill and some raw chicken package and some used tissue, and you gotta get past all that, and you get that diamond ring and you hold on to it. People-pleasing, for example. It's one of those motives you gotta sift through. Because we see in this text, Paul's saying it in a negative way, that he wasn't after pleasing people. And yet there's other places in scripture where he talks about it in a good way. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 33, he says, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Or in Romans 15 too, it says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So there's people pleasing and when it's for others good, it's a good thing. And then there's people pleasing when it's for self-glory that it becomes a negative thing, it becomes a sin. And so we've gotta take our motives and we've gotta sift through them and figure out what in it at the central core is I want to please God, I want to do the right thing, I wanna have good motives out of love. And then where is it that I'm really just after selfish gain? I'm in it for myself. We gotta sift through that, holding on to the good motive and getting rid of the bad and really replacing them with the one tried and true motive that will always keep our heart in check. Uh, let's turn back to our text, and the Apostle Paul speaks to this one ultimate motive, the one that trumps all others. It's not selfish gain, it's not looking good, uh, it's not doing anything because it's easy. In verses three through four, let's read that one last time. He says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. So God's given him a job, and he wants to do it for him, for God, to please God. And it really is so much more simple when that is our focus. I mean, it's complicated when we have all these mixed motivations and emotions that are driving us. 
but it really should be that simple. I said it this way for point number three, focus on pleasing God. When we are focused on how we look, on how we feel, on what we gain, it's like we have all these bad bosses that we're attached to. As a recent dog owner, it's almost like I picture each of these bad motives as a leash that gets put around our necks that controls us. So it's like we're going through life and all of a sudden we get people pleasing attached to our necks. And it's like yanking us over here. And then we have a different bad motive, you know, say it's laziness and it's yanking us to do things this way. And then selfishness is yanking us to do things this way. So we're getting yanked back and forth. What we need to do is we gotta rip off each and every one of those motives and heal, if you will, in a sense, right next to our owner. We shouldn't need a leash. I mean, we have the most perfect and good owner that if we stay right next to him, he will lead us exactly in the direction that we should go. And even if you've never had a dog, you can imagine how good and right it would be for a dog to not get distracted by all the other things and to just be focused on pleasing his owner. We've got a master who knows what's best for us. He's good and he's loving and our attention needs to stay fixed on pleasing him and how freeing it is when we do. That's crazy to think about, that we are most freed when we focus on pleasing the most frightening being in the universe. I mean, really, he is. Paul says that he's focused on pleasing God who tests our hearts. He even calls God to witness in verse five as someone who knows what we think and knows why we do what we do. I don't know how confidently I wanna say, well, God knows my heart. I mean, I just think of his, his great holiness, his standard of holiness, uh, how he hates sin, the power that he has over life and death, the power that he has to throw people into hell. But yet, he is more good and fair and perfect than any person we will ever try to please. And when we go to please people, they're gonna misunderstand us. Uh, they might not like what we do for no good reason at all. And the affirmation that we get from them, the praise that we get from them, it won't satisfy and all the other motives that we are tempted to hang on to, to let drive us, they won't satisfy. They might captivate us, but they will not satisfy. Pleasing God will. Colossians 3 uh, is a great passage that addresses the place that people pleasing should take in our lives versus God pleasing. I'll read it for you. Colossians 3 verses 22 through 25 says, bond servants, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So we're not supposed to be people pleasers, and yet we're supposed to do the right thing, right? We see a, a boss and someone who's working for it. They're trying to do the right thing for the boss, right? You do that, but not in the way of eye service, as a people pleaser. 
You do it because you're fearing the Lord, because your eyes are on him, you're focused on pleasing him, and it is worthwhile. Uh, He will give us the inheritance as our reward. The benefits of people-pleasing are so short-lived, but ultimately the benefit of being a God-pleaser is worthwhile and lasting. Let's do that. Let's please God more and more. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says later on in the book. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So how do we do that? How do we please God? I mean, first we just, we think, if God were to test my heart, what would he see? Would he see that my aim is to please him? Or would he see that I'm driven by so many other things? And then we pray and we ask God, God, please help me to want to please you the most. Help me to make that my focus, to make that my aim. And we learn more. We learn more what it means to please God. Uh, We have the black and white words of scripture that are never changing that we can learn what it means to please God But also, you think about the fact that though those words are never changing, the seasons of our life are constantly changing. And so we are constantly learning new ways to please God. You know, you go through some new health crisis and you're learning, what does it look like to please God now? You have some relational struggles. What does it look like to please God in this? And as your kids grow up and they become adults, or you have grandchildren, or you gain new wisdom and you can invest in new people, and you look and you see, how does God want me to please him now? It is always fresh and relevant. It is never boring to figure out how can I please God in this stage of my life. I think it's also good to think about the fact that we are pleasing a person. We're not trying to obey a set of rules uh, or follow just a, you know, a guideline for life. We're pleasing a real person. Proverbs eleven twenty says, those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Or David says in 1 Chronicles 29, 17, I know my God that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. Delight pleasure. I mean, we can please God. We can be a blessing to God, and we should want to. And he knows that we are frail humans. Uh, He knows our hearts are not perfect, but he does delight as we seek to please him as best we can, like you would of your child. As imperfectly as they do it, they want to obey. And when they really want to do what mommy wants them to do, A mom's heart is delighted and it is pleased. Don't be discouraged though if this hasn't been your focus as much as you know it should be because you can do it now. You can repent today and you can start living to please the Lord starting in this very moment. To some degree, all of us need to rip off whatever motivations we've let get around our neck and yank us around. We gotta rip them off and get our eyes on pleasing God, whether it be in evangelism, whether it be in serving God in some other way, just in life in general, about every area of life, we should be able to give that kind of report that Paul gave, that I'm doing what I do to please God who tests my heart. 
and ultimately that will cause us to represent Christ well and it will keep us from the wrong motives. There's this gala in history that I was reading about from the 1800s. Her name is Frances Havergal. She was a Christian woman and there's a, a few things that we know about her from history. She had an amazing voice. Uh, She was in demand as a concert soloist. She could have been famous uh, for her her voice, but she wanted to live a quiet life and to use her voice to simply worship God. She had some heirlooms and some costly jewelry. And at one point, she gave all that over to the church for some evangelistic efforts that they were working on. She was educated. She learned several modern languages as well as Greek and Hebrew and basically with all she had to offer. She wanted to reach people for the gospel and she wanted to help them to follow him. She wrote these words of this hymn that I'm sure you're familiar with and providentially we sung it this morning. It says, take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise. In a stanza or so later, she says, take my voice and let me sing, always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. And it ends with, take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Beautiful words. And they poetically mirror the concept of having our eyes fixed on pleasing God. To have our eyes on him not people-pleasing, not going after self-glory in some way, not after selfish gain. And that's why she was able to give up monetarily, right? Give up her stuff for evangelistic efforts. That's why she was able to use her voice to only worship God, because she wasn't in it after herself, trying to look good before other people, to have self-glory of any kind. Everything she had, she wanted to please God, and clearly she was a good representative of Christ because we know her over a century later, if not by her name, by the words of her song that she clearly lived out. It's like a slightly more modern day example of the heart we see in the Apostle Paul, who really was saying, take my life, right? I'm not in it for all these other things. I'm not in it for money or pleasure or glory or any of those things. He just wanted to be a faithful messenger of the gospel and he proved to be trustworthy to the core. And that's what we should want to be as Christian women, to be good representatives of Jesus, not in it for ourselves. Like the hymn said, to live ever only all for thee. Let's pray. God, I thank you for even giving the Apostle Paul the strength to live out the truths that we saw in this text. We know that you are even behind his ability to live this out. And then to write it down, and I'm sure it was an encouragement to the Thessalonians, and I thank you that it can now be an encouragement to us, and I pray that it would be. 
that we really would want to represent you well to the core of who we are. That we would speak boldly, not because we are confident in ourselves and we think we are awesome, but because we know you are awesome. Because we know the gospel message that you gave us has power to save and you have power to save people and you have power to help us declare it boldly. And I pray that we would. I pray we'd represent you by our lives. I pray that even our motives would represent you, that people would sense that, that they would sense that we're not in it for ourselves, but we are in it to please you and because we love other people. And God, I pray that our eyes would be fixed on pleasing you, how freeing that is. I pray that we would be freed from all the other motives that we're tempted to be driven by how complicated they make our lives, God. We wanna just be fixed on pleasing you. Help us to do that. Help us to see where our motives veer off. Teach us in that moment how we can focus on pleasing you. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed to your groups.